I am not the next thing for which you can be grateful. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning or if you haven't been here in a while, what you've observed and witnessed so far this morning is unlike anything that's ever happened here before. And if you come again next week, we'll say the same thing. They're everyone different. The one thing that we hope does not change this morning is the truth that we teach here. We know the truth doesn't change. We know that our, we hope that the way that we teach it is accurate and that it honors God. Uh, our pastor Kobe is not here with us today. I did get a text from him last night uh, that said in so many words, <laughs> that means I just realized that means something different to some of you than it does others, so many words. But um, <laughs> uh, I think it, he said, he said, go hard, Ronnie, tomorrow, preach hard. And what I heard him to say was, let him have it with both barrels. I have two guns, one for each of you. And that concludes our movie references for this morning. <laughs> so I'm sorry, Kobe, I couldn't resist. Before I preach, I always try to listen to as many godly men who have the same message available as I possibly can. I try very hard not to rely on their interpretation of the particular passage we're looking at, but I do seek the knowledge, the wisdom, and the experience of godly men. One of the men that I listen to has several letters before and after his name. And this same passage took him an hour and 20 minutes to preach. This morning as I was getting ready, I got a text from a cowboy. And it took him 10 words to preach the same message. When I heard the message from the highly educated man, I thought there is no way that my level of education or training can match that. When I uh, got the message from the cowboy, I thought there is no way I can understand the depth of that truth. It's my desire this morning to land somewhere closer to the cowboy than the educated man and give you a very solid representation of God's word this morning. Personally, it's a very meaningful time for me. I don't take the opportunity lightly and neither should you when you have the opportunity to handle God's word. It's a very serious matter. The subject and the reference in the text that we look at this morning, there is perhaps no place in scripture that needs your attention and your decision more than this one does. We're privileged and charged to look at what is the most important transition in question in perhaps all of the scripture. Mark is one of the synoptic gospels, and that just means a summary. The things that are recorded in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are not exhaustive. It does not record every conversation and every word of of every conversation, but it does give us a summary of Jesus's interaction and time with the disciples. So then if Mark is a representation of the gospel, it behooves us to pay very close attention. The gospel is what Jesus is about. Mark 1.1 says that uh, in, the, in the beginning of this gospel, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
So we begin in Mark 1.1 talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it builds to chapter 8 verse 27. To the declaration of an event that is going to happen. That is what Christianity is all about. It's what Christ's ministry is all about. And from that point after verse 33. We head hard and fast to the cross. If your heart is not already prepared, it's not likely that in the next few minutes it can be prepared to receive the word. But as important as this message is, I think it's important for us to take just a moment and allow you quiet time to just open your heart to God and ask him to reveal anything to you that keeps you from understanding and hearing the truth and the gravity of the word of God this morning. And so we're going to allow you to spend just a moment in silence as you prepare your hearts to receive God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word came and dwelt among us. Thank you through the Holy Spirit we have the ability to understand what you're saying to us. Father, I pray that our hearts and our minds would be clear this morning that we could see Jesus clearly. Pray you'd make yourself known to us in a way this morning that we've not experienced. Hide us behind the cross this morning. We pray, we thank you in Jesus' name. I want to go back to last week's sermon that Colby preached of, of Mark chapter 8, verse 22 through 26. The subject of that is the blind man and the... Uh, the action, the activity of Jesus healing that blind man. There are a couple of things in there that I think it would be okay with Kobe if I brought out, and it's hard to extract everything from a passage and give it in 20 to 40 minutes. But the things that I want to bring out and what he preached to us helps lay the groundwork for what I want to talk to you about today in the same chapter, verses 27 through 33. It starts out in verse 22, Then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. Bethsaida is on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And much of Jesus' story and earthly ministry is centered around the Sea of Galilee and the towns that we're going to be talking about this morning. There's something very unique about Bethsaida that I don't remember that Kobe brought out and how it relates to this blind man's story. Bethsaida is condemned. It's basically already been judged. The works that Jesus did around Bethsaida and the Sea of Galilee were such that there should be no question as to who Jesus is and to who God the Father is. And having rejected those signs that Jesus performed while there, they're condemned. 
I'm going to take you to Matthew, the 11th chapter, verse 20 through 24. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, another town there close by. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, refer to Ezekiel 26. They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes, but I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. You remember what happened to Sodom? But I say to you, this it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. What an announcement. What an announcement. Back to verse 23, it says, So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town, and when he had spit in his eyes, on his eyes, and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. There's a couple of things here. This man they're bringing out of Bethsaida, which is condemned because they have not responded to the work of Jesus there already. And the works that Jesus has done there are such that there is no excuse. There is no reason not to accept Jesus, the Christ. Sorry, I've got a little hay fever going on this morning. Two things here. He, they bring the blind man out of the darkest place and literally, and no pun on words, he's blind and the city is blind. He, they, they bring him out of the darkest place in the world for Jesus to minister to. I don't care what your circumstances are. I don't care where you're from. I don't care how dark the government is. I don't care what your family situation is. God calls people out of darkness to himself. And he heals them. And he forgives their sins. And he brings them to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Never lose hope for those who are in dark places who have no understanding of the word of God and what Jesus has done for them. God calls people out of darkness into his marvelous light. The second thing about this I want you to notice is, uh, and he spit on his eyes and put his hands on him and asked him if he saw anything. As you hear the word of God and as you are taught the word of God and you sit under the teaching of the word of God and you observe mature Christians in their lives, God expects you to do some self-evaluation. What do you see? Here's my works. What do you see? How does it impact you? Tells me a couple of things. There is no environment that God cannot call us out of to a saving knowledge of himself. God always expects us to evaluate our relationship with him. What do you see now? I've worked in your life. Tell me what you see. Evaluate your relationship with Jesus Christ and with your brothers and sisters based on who Jesus is. What do you see now? Tell me where you're at. In every situation, we can know 
that our lives are not the measure of Christ, that our safety, our security, our sanctification is in Jesus Christ and because of what he has done. We continue to draw closer to Christ to be more like him. That's the evaluation process, and that's where you should come after every question you ask about your relationship with God. Okay, some review that I think really helps set up our discussion for today, which begins in verse 27. And thank you, Colby, for letting me borrow some of your message. Now, Jesus and his disciples went out to the town of Caesarea Philippi. Geographical setting here, as we said, the southern portion of it is uh, the Sea of Galilee. Bethsaida is on the north, northeast coast of that sea. From there, 25 miles north, almost directly north, kind of the River Jordan, 25 miles north of that is Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi gets its name from Herod had four sons, and when he died, he divided his land. Philip got this part of it, okay? Caesarea comes from King Caesar, whom everybody paid deference to, so I'm going to name my town after Caesar in hopes of gaining his favor. That's where the name comes from. It's at the base of Mount Hermon, which is 9,000 feet, it's said, and you all can read this, but I think it's interesting. It just gives us a visual of where this is happening. Rises 9,000 feet. Remember, we're almost at sea level, right? Sea of Galilee's right there. Mediterranean's here. Three main headwaters come out of Mount Hermon to join and form the River Jordan. Caesarea Philippi is at the base of that mountain. There is no more ungodly place on earth at that time. But the road that Jesus, taking the, that Jesus is taking the disciples on from Bethsaida to Caesarea Philippi is remote. It's not well-traveled. Not a lot of distractions going to be on that 25-mile journey. What did Jesus do with the blind man? Met him outside the city met him outside the den of all those things around us that, that vie for our attention and for our loyalty and for our resource and for our time. Jesus intentionally, I believe, is taking them on a journey where it's just he and them. And the question that this passage deals with, guys, gals, is just between you and him. Just between you and him. This is a hard turn in the scripture, in the gospel. To this point, in the gospels or in the gospel of Mark, we've been hearing about all the wonderful things that Jesus has done. The healing, the miracles, uh, the fish, all those things, all those miracles that he has done. And now, beginning in verse 27, he takes a hard turn and he's teaching his disciples. Listen to this. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? And what were the answers? John the Baptist, Elijah, Matthew even says Jeremiah. So 
what about Jesus would cause those people to, to give him those names or to wonder if that's in fact who he was? John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus, right? John the Baptist preached the same message that Jesus was going to preach. Their mothers were related. Elijah is a prophet that didn't see death. Was taken to heaven. And he was supposed to come back before the, before the Messiah came. And so society understands that this man, Jesus, has very special characteristics and abilities because they are comparing him to John the Baptist, who is the preacher of the day. What's the problem with John the Baptist here? He got no head. He's been beheaded. Can't be John the Baptist, right? It's not Elijah, but revered as super prophet, then the statements or the guesses that this man Jesus is one of those seems to put him in very high company and very high regard, doesn't it? I tell you what, let's do an exercise. Let's walk out these doors and this group go down that street, y'all go down that street, and y'all go down that street, and you ask people, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? What kind of quest, what kind of answers do you think you'll get? Good teacher. Apparently, there's not a, knowledge, a lot of knowledge about Jesus out there, is there? True, true that. Here's some, here's some ways that that might be answered. A prophet, but not God, nor was he crucified. Just another of millions of gods. A spiritually mature, good, warm-hearted person. A prophet, a teacher, a god, but you can be one too. Some will deny he ever even existed. And some don't know what to believe. Except for those last two, those statements indicate the most popular religions and the highest school of thought in our country. That's who Jesus Christ is. You know what I think a more common answer would be? Who do you think Jesus is? Who? Who are you talking about? I believe that's where we're at today. Who is Jesus? I don't know. I don't know. Which is a sad commentary on our time. It's even a more sad commentary perhaps on our effort to evangelize and bear testimony of who he is. Our intellect, our logic, our ability to reason, and whatever answer that gives us to the question of who Jesus is only condemns us. There is no answer that you can give that society gives you or that your learning or that your education or that your reasoning and ability outside God's interaction with your soul can give you that does not condemn you. Because the answer to who Jesus is tells us everything about him and why he came. Hopefully we're going to draw that out this morning.
He said to them, but who do you say that I am? In verse 27, when he asked, who do men say that I am? No, uh, when was it? Verse 20. Uh, yeah, 27. 27. Who do men say that I am? In Matthew, the word that is used there, I don't, I don't remember the, the language word, but it means masses. Who do people say that I am? In Luke, he uses the word for crowd. Those people that have been thronging after us, those people that have been clamoring to see my miracles, a little smaller crowds than the masses, who do they say that I am? And here he says, away with that. Who do you say that I am? You can't rely on what you've heard. You can't rely now or call on societal's impression, society's impression of who Jesus is. You can't recall what you've heard in a book or heard on the radio. Who do you say that I am? Totally different question. The disciples get it right. Peter speaks right up. And if you recall, he's the impetuous one. He's the quick one. He's always Johnny on the spot. You are the Christ. Matthew says, and I don't, I don't believe that one is accurate and the other is inaccurate. I think probably Peter said this different ways. From this point on, the things that we hear and that, we, and that Jesus is talking about with the disciples is repeated over and over and over on the journeys that they take until he gets to the cross. But Matthew says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Isn't that right? Christ is Greek for the Old Testament title, Messiah, or the anointed one to be prophet, priest, and king. I want to read a verse in Matthew for you real quick here. I'm sorry I don't have it written down. We're in Matthew, the 16th chapter. Verse 17, after Peter has made the declaration that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Look at John 6, 44 real quickly. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draw him. And I will raise him up at the last day. Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, Jesus talking. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Look also in 1 Corinthians 2 and 2 Corinthians 3. Peter's knowledge of whose Christ was did not come to him because of the 
impressions or the understanding of what people had said and told him. His understanding of who Jesus was was given to him by the Father. And we must understand that a relationship with Jesus Christ cannot come to us save the Father draw us and the Holy Spirit woo us and lead us. And I made this point to you in a different sermon and I, and I will make it every time I talk to you. When you feel the Spirit of God calling you, answer and obey. Bethsaida Corazon taught, got the light, got the light, taught the light, no more light. Make sure that your refusal to answer the Spirit's call to a walk with Jesus Christ does not end before the invitation is withdrawn. There will be a time when the Spirit no longer talks to the heart of man. Then he strictly warned them that they should not tell anyone about him. First time I heard this back whenever that caught me like that, I didn't fully understand. Why would Jesus not want this story told? We've already told you part of it. Because the towns were condemned. They couldn't, he, they couldn't respond anymore. Even more important maybe to this passage here is, let me back up just a little bit. Did he not confess Jesus to be the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah? Why would Jesus not want this message proclaimed? This is great news for hopeful Jews who have waited generations and lifetime, lifetime for a conqueror, for a king, for a savior, for someone to take them out from under the oppression of Roman rule. And here he is, and you're telling us we can't tell people. We can't tell people that this Christ is here now. Why? Why? The disciples settle the question of who Jesus is, but they don't understand yet why he is here and what he is to do. One point on the one hand, their concept of Messiah is highly developed. They understand those things about the conqueror and the ones who's to set up his kingdom and expand his kingdom and make Israel the most powerful nation in the world. They get that. The rest of what we're going to talk about today, they don't get. Verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man, at that point in time, Jesus' teaching to the disciples changed it went just like that now we're talking about the cross now we're talking about why i came and the reason we'll, we'll, we'll explain that here in a minute he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again this is the leg of the gospel that the jews had missed a little bit lengthy, but I want you please to bear with me. I'm going to read to you from Isaiah, the 53rd chapter. Who has believed our report? And who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. 
And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by, by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare this gener his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For, my trans for the transgressions of my people, he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked. Imagine Peter's countenance and resolve after the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the, the anointed one. And he's here with you. And then comes verse 31. And 32, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. We just read about that in Isaiah 53. And be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he spoke this word openly. Debbie homeschooled our kids through a certain point in their academic life. And I can remember the intentionality that she taught with. I was a farmer and a rancher. And in the wintertime, I didn't leave the house before she got up. I hung around for a while. And when school started, I was out. And don't come back. <laughs> Wasn't quite like that, but pretty close. Taught to them clearly and plainly. I can remember, and I, and I watched Jenny teach her kids, and I'm sure others of you who teach and understand the importance of young minds and shaping them do the same thing. You're very intentional and deliberate about the things that you teach, and it's very important that they get these things. I can remember my mama, who was not a teacher, though I learned most of what I know from her, and I've told you this before too, but would take my head lovingly and look in my eyes. Ronnie, can you hear the words I'm saying? You have to understand this. And this is the way that Jesus is teaching them openly and clearly, precept by precept, line by line. He wants them to understand what is coming. And first of all, the message is, I have to suffer and I have to die for you. So imagine after Peter is commended for getting the answer right, Jesus starts talking to him like this. You all know a Peter. I'm trying to think of somebody that we all know that wouldn't be offensive if I mentioned their name, and I, I really can't. But he's, he's that guy out in front. He wants the ball. He's carrying the message. He's this guy. He's in charge. Okay? Jesus tells him that this is what's going to happen. Isaiah 53, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die for your sake. 
Peter's going, uh-uh, uh-uh. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I don't know these languages. I don't pretend to, but I read what these things meant, and rebuke is an extremely strong word. It wasn't like, man, Jesus, maybe that's a little strong. Maybe you kind of need to come at that a little softer. And let's don't forget, you know, we got these throngs that are following, and they want to be, no, it's, Jesus, you can't do that. You can't say that. This is the wrong message. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, can you imagine them walking along? Peter's here giving Jesus the what for. And Jesus hears what he's saying, and he turns around and he looks, and there's an immediate separation. Here's Peter, here's the rest of the disciples, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Can you imagine what happens to the resolve, to the mentality, to the confidence, to the stature of Peter when he hears that just after he's been told? You got it right. Get behind me, Satan. Is that not the strongest accusation that could be made toward us? What could you hear from someone that you loved that would bring you down further and more quickly than get behind me? Get out of my sight is what it means. Satan, you're a stumbling block to me. You hinder my purpose. And what does that mean? Did he not just confess him as the Messiah? But what Jesus wants them to know is that the Messiah, Christ, has come, first of all, to suffer and die. Peter got it right. He didn't get it all right. The disciples had to know this, and you and I have to know that Jesus had to die. God the Father willed it and required it. John 3.16 He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that he die. Romans 8.32 He who did not not spare his own son but delivered him up for us offered him as a sacrifice. Jesus himself promised it. Hebrews 10.5-7 And this comes, it's a quote from Psalms 40 verse 7 Therefore when he came into the world he said sacrifice and offering you did not desire but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. It was prophesied in Isaiah 53, and we just read that. Because the law demanded that the wages of sin is death, Romans 3. Romans 5, 2 Corinthians 5. <clears throat> Preaching past my notes. If our testimony of Jesus does not include his full work of suffering, death on the cross, and his resurrection, then our reality is no different than those we talked to when we went out these doors a while ago. It is an incomplete, inaccurate picture of who Jesus is and why he came. We will see and experience Jesus one day as King of glory. 
until we go with Jesus to the cross and understand what it cost him that we could call him Christ. We don't get it. We'll never participate. Turn to Philippians, the third chapter. Start in verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these have I counted for loss for Christ, counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of, Je- of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count death as rub- count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That is our walk. That is Christ the Messiah to the cross. That is why Christ the Lord Messiah afterward comes in glory. We only have one other elder here today. We only have one deacon here today, but I'm, I'm going to hammer you guys just the same. And I, and I say this, being one from love but a deep, deep concern about what this passage tells us. This is meant to be an encouragement, an admonition, and an exhortation. It's a warning. And because you're responsible for this church and for this flock, here it comes to you. We have to guard the message of this word that this church proclaims with every might that we have. This is truth. Half truth is not truth. Whole truth is truth. This pulpit is not a carnival game. We don't just try people out here. People that we put in this pulpit must know the truth. Our Awana leaders, we're not just filling spots. Our Sunday school teachers, we're just not meeting grade requirements. Our house churches, we're not just building numbers. If we're going to proclaim Christ as our Lord and our Savior, we have to guard the truth. Be diligent in that duty. We are responsible for that. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined, sorry, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is our Savior. Turn to 1 Peter as we close.
1 Peter 2, verse 21 says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. Psalm Isaiah 53. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter finally got it. Jesus must suffer. Our path is to the cross through suffering to have eternal glory with Jesus on the other side. I don't want you to be afraid to share your testimony. I want you to be careful. If your testimony is a a half-truth, it leads people astray. Tell them about everything of who Jesus was. Make it your life's purpose to see Jesus clearly. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your Holy Spirit even now ministers it to us. May our hearts and minds be open, but may they be careful, Lord, to discern the truth and to have a relationship such with you, with you such that we know your voice and we're able to discern those that are not. May you be pl- pleased to bless us this morning. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.